Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad y'all are here. Welcome to the Story Church. It's good to see your faces and hear your voices. And I want to welcome those of you who are in person, obviously. We also got a lot of people joining us online, as always. Um, Whether you're joining us on the story.church website or YouTube, Facebook, wherever you're joining us, I'm really glad you're here. And you're part of the story today. We also have our uh, community in the Heights in the Timber Grove campus. They have live preaching today. Meredith is preaching over there today live, so they don't have to listen to me. So y'all are stuck with me, and that's, uh, that's the deal today. If we don't know each other yet, my name is Eric, and I'm the lead pastor here, and that must mean you're, you're new. If, if we haven't gotten acquainted or we don't know each other quite uh, well, very yet, uh, yet, my words. Anyway, we are, <laughs> we, are, uh, we are really glad to see you if you're new. Um, because that means you have trusted us with part of your weekend. That means maybe you're looking for something, someplace to connect, and uh, we hope that the story can be that. We have a mission here to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus, so you don't have to be religious or um, super like involved in a religious sense. What you really need is just a, a desire to know God, and, and that's our hope. So we can, uh, we can be that community for you if you're so inclined. And it goes beyond Sunday mornings, as you just heard Dylan talk about re-engage and all kinds of other things that are starting up as we near the end of summer. So summer's over, kids. Sorry to tell you. And uh, a lot of kids are going back to school. HISD kids are still summering it up because HISD decided not to start until autumn this year. And... <laughs> Whatever. My kids are HISD, and uh, we're just going to love every minute of it. But um, those of you that are already back, um, hope, hope it's going well. And those of you that will soon be back, I hope it, uh, it's a great start to the year. And we're praying for all of our teachers and administrators and students and parents and everybody. But along with the end of the summer comes the end of an era here at the Story Church. We have been all summer long celebrating the Summer of Love, which has been a lot of fun, actually. Um, this is part seven of seven in our message series. Um, called The Summer of Love, and and for seven weeks we've been teaching. I've been learning, man. It's been really fun to actually learn and teach through topics like dating in the modern-day world, Um, marriage, commitment, sex, um, uh, divorce, uh, and, and of course, uh, everything that goes along with that. So so hopefully y'all have gotten something out of this series. In a couple weeks we'll be pivoting and diving deep into the book of Acts for like 26 or 27 weeks. So the book of Acts will take us from September all the way through uh, Easter, actually. So it's going to be quite a journey through the book of Acts, um, but for the summertime, we've been doing a lot of practical teaching. It's been fun. Uh, Along with the Summer of Love has come something that the Maybe God podcast team has been calling Operation Matchmaker, and that was the biggest swing or the biggest risk that we took all summer. Um, This was an application process by which like tons and tons of single Christians in Houston applied to be a part of our singles mixers and other kinds of connection points and also to potentially be match made by me and sent on a date with somebody who might be compatible with them or or whatever. And um, lest y'all think that I was just kidding, some of you were calling my bluff, saying I would never do it. I wanted you to know that as of Thursday night, the matchmaking portion of Operation Matchmaker is well underway as our first matchmade couple went out on a date, chauffeured and chaperoned by yours truly, all right? So how about it, all right? Must have been the most awkward date of their lives, man. (laughs) They didn't know each other. It was a blind date for them and their pastors in the front seat. So... It was uh, quite an evening, uh, and thanks to the 
the good people over at uh, the, uh, the Copa Osteria in Rice Village, um, they enjoyed a, an awesome dinner and uh, were there quite a while, I've heard. Once they started dinner, I backed off, all right? I didn't stay for dinner. I've heard they had a great time. Um, you know, who knows whether it's one of those, like, love connection stories. Probably not, but if it is, that's great. Can't wait to, ce- to celebrate that wedding. That's a wedding I'll cry at for sure because I had a hand in it. And... Um, <laughs> And, uh, but, but uh, one way or another, like these two people now uh, know each other and they're brother and sister in Christ and there's all kind of great things that goes along with that. They, they really had a good time and, and um, you know, who knows, maybe there's more on the way in that regard. But it's been a fun, fun summer and um, the, the teaching sort of portion of this summer has, has really revolved uh, heavily around, you know, singleness. And, um, and the first half was directly at and exclusively um, at single people, really. Um, and that's good, because I don't think we talk enough to or for single Christians. I think single Christians are left to fend for themselves too often, and churches often make them feel like they're just like Christians in waiting, um, where they're not full Christians yet until they're actually in a marriage, and um, then they're considered, I don't know. I, we don't say that, but I think we sort of do sometimes with our um, implicit actions and things. And so I've enjoyed the opportunity to come alongside singles uh, in this series. Now, for today, before we wrap up, wrap up the series, there's some stuff i got to say to married people directly. So this message, part seven of seven, is going to be um, directly to marriage, married people, and in a secondary way, to people who hope to be married one day. So if you are married or have been married already, or you hope to be married one day, I really wrote this message with you in mind, and I know that's not everybody, and I struggle to write messages that aren't for everybody. But this message is almost for everybody, based on the statistics and the data points that I've seen, almost everybody, even today, still wants to get married or is already married or has been married. Like, that's like 87% of us Americans. That's not just Christians. That's like all Americans, 85 to 87% of people have been married or are married or hope to be married. And, and so that's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, all that I've heard ever since I went to school, really, in college and grad school was that marriage's days are over, that the time for marriage has come and gone as, in terms of it being the norm in our society. It's kind of come and gone, and, and now people are, are moving on from marriage. That's what I've sort of heard. And, and yet, um, you know, even though you see that in, like, mainstream media outlets, I mean, I, I could have picked any story from any mainstream media outlet, but I found one from The Hill. And The, the Hill reported what you might expect. Is this the end of marriage in America, and they're saying that because fewer people are getting married, and those who are getting married are getting married later than ever, and those who are getting married at last are getting married for shorter periods of time before the divorce. Like, that's sort of the the narrative about marriage, and that's not untrue from a statistical perspective. However, at the same time, the same percentage of people as ever still say they want to get married one day if they're not already. So how do we explain that? How do we explain the fact that just as many people say they want to get married or about as many people say they hope to get married, even though marriage has supposedly become passe, a thing of the past, archaic, outdated, you know, it's over, supposedly. What do we chalk this up to? And it really depends on who you ask. Different people will answer that question in different ways. Christians have pretty clear answers to that. I'll get that into that in a minute. But when you ask secular people, 
for an explanation about why so many people, it's a huge plurality of people, 87% of people still hope to get married if they're not already. You'll often hear answers that will, if you listen over time, will morph, will change and evolve over time because that's what secular answers do. They tend to change over time. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to be sort of pejorative or, or dismissive there. It's just a, sec, a purely secular answer to a question like that will evolve based on secular cultural realities. So there, it's a relativistic sort of worldview. And what I mean in terms of marriage is that they used to say people want to get married because people want a family. They want progeny. They want children. And that was our reason for wanting to get married was, you know, to have uh, people to extend our legacy or whatever. And then people stopped wanting to have children and, and people wanted, you know, a cocker spaniel instead or something. And they started putting their, their shih tzus in the baby carriages and all the stuff we do now. And, and, and children were not as big of a deal culturally as they used to be. And, uh, and so we needed a new reason to explain why people still want to get married at the same clip as they always have, and the answer shifted to something about romance and soulmates. And, and you really had to be paying attention to this, but about 20 years ago or so, there was, I mean, the soulmate phenomenon was re reaching its peak in our culture. That was the you complete me age, right? Like the, the um, Tom Cruise, Jerry Maguire, like, you complete me. It's like, crying, and this, this is you complete me. It's like that explanation for the marriage quest in our culture really um, had to do with you being an incomplete person until you found your person that completed you. And your person's out there. It's very, like, it goes way back in, like, human lore and paganism, really, and all this other stuff. But the, the, the duality of it, like, I'm half a person and my soulmate's out there somewhere and it's my job to find them. And when I find them, I'll be complete. That was hot for a while. And so that was the explanation. Until it wasn't anymore. And what happened was we raised a generation of people um, based on the self-esteem philosophy, where we told them they were the best, the greatest, everything, the all in all, until from the moment they were born until they, you know, flew the nest. And that generation grew up thinking, I'm not incomplete. I'm perfect. I'm, everybody's been giving me ribbons since I was a baby. Like, it's just, I'm just for showing up. I'm like, perfect. I'm, I'm good. And, and I'm, again, I'm just having fun here. But like, that's the, that's the mentality that's most prevalent today. And embedded in that or implied in that is you don't need someone to complete you. And I like that part of this mentality. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad we're not looking for soulmates anymore because that was ridiculous. Okay? So I like that part of it. I don't like the why behind that, however, because the why is I'm self-sufficient. I'm all-sufficient. I'm me. Like, ta-da. And, and now the reason for this generation to, the reason they're continuing to seek marriage isn't for children and progeny, and it's not for a soulmate and, and completion of me. It is, uh, I'm looking for someone to increase my happiness or to increase my influence or to increase my social status and standing or, or to compliment me as a person, like their greatness should equal and complement my greatness and, and, and someone who can affirm me for who I am. The worst thing you can do in a marriage type relationship in this cultural moment is to require someone to change. In fact, the number one thing men say they're looking for in a partner, according to one study, was someone who won't ask me to change. <laughs> Good luck, guys. Good luck <laughs> with that one, all right?
So the idea now is you're looking for someone to um, basically amplify who you already are. Like that's the explanation for why folks are still looking for marriage um, today, all right? So the Bible has a very different take on this. We as Christians have a very different take on the human inclination or instinct toward marriage, and I'll get to that in, uh, in, in just a minute, but first, I want to get to this uh, today's lie. If you've been around for this series, you know every week we are debunking a different common cultural lie that many people are believing and telling today, and the lie that I'm going to say uh, to debunk and attack today uh, has to do with marriage. It's lie number seven. It is your marriage and your spouse should fulfill you. Your marriage and your spouse should fulfill you. Now, most people would say, yeah, they probably should. Um, maybe some of us, like if I had started my message with this and said, agree or disagree, most people would have been like, yeah, sounds good. Now you're on to me. You'd be like, no, it's not what it, no, I don't believe it. No, I don't think so. <laughs> but, but I think it's something that's so innocuous sounding that it would be easily believed. And that's the problem. To walk around thinking that your marriage and your spouse should fulfill you. And we set our marriage and our spouse up for <clears throat> disappointment upon disappointment. Now, this lie that I just shared is fundamental to the modern worldview of dating. If you listen to podcasts featuring relationship experts or if you read articles and stuff, you'll hear them orbiting this lie. They won't come out and say it like, like verbatim, like, well, it's your spouse's job to fulfill you. They won't say it quite like that. They'll couch it in softer terms. They'll say things like, if your spouse doesn't fulfill you or meet your needs, then something's off, something's deficient with them. Something's wrong with them. They'll even say something like, you shouldn't be with someone who doesn't make you happy or with whom you don't find fulfillment. They'll say, if you really married the right person, your marriage wouldn't be this hard. That's one I heard quite a bit, actually, and that's a pernicious lie. Because that's something our itching ears would love to hear when our marriages are hard. It's an easy out. If, you're, if, if you marry the right person, your marriage wouldn't be this hard. Uh, other, other sorts of ways they couch this lie is, uh, is you deserve to feel good. You deserve to feel wanted. You deserve to feel loved. And finally, maybe most disturbing is this little nugget that I read in one article that said, if your spouse doesn't appreciate, understand, or fulfill you, you owe it. Listen, you owe it to yourself to find fulfillment elsewhere. Now, in fairness, I think this blogger, whoever wrote that last one, meant like go for a bike ride with your buddies or something, but you can see how easily that line of thinking could justify an extramarital affair. If your spouse isn't fulfilling you, you owe it to yourself to find fulfillment elsewhere? Well, why not in the arms of another? Now, uh, I have talked quite a bit in this series, uh, I would say to an uh, uncomfortable degree, about uh, dating apps. <laughs> you, you don't come to church to hear your pastor talk about dating apps, and I get that. The first few weeks, we talked a lot about dating apps in the series, uh, Bumble and Hinge, and the most popular one is Tinder. Tinder has, I think, like over 80 million active users um, worldwide now. It's the most popular. But there's another dating app that no one talks about because no one wants to admit that they're on it. And yet it, it boasts 75 million active users, almost as much as Tinder. And the app that I'm talking about is called Ashley Madison, right? 
So if you're sitting next to your spouse and they just twitched in their seat, you might want to say a prayer for them as I tell you about Ashley Madison. So uh, I believe we just showed you the, the billboard. If you're, if you're listening and not watching uh, to this uh, sermon, um, the billboard says, life is short, have an affair. The mission of this uh, organization is to help unfulfilled married people find fulfillment by cheating on their spouse. And if you know my wife, Pastor Gio, she is a very strong woman. She is a fiery Latino woman. And I told her about this billboard, and she said, it should say, if you have an affair, your life will be short. (laughs) So I'm going to carry that with me for the rest of my life. It's called accountability, people. All right? Ashley Madison's entire business model is built upon the lie that it's your spouse's job to fulfill you. And if they fail to do that job, they're basically forcing you to seek fulfillment elsewhere. When he was in his 30s, a man named Harrison Scott Key was living the dream. By any measure, he was living his best life. He was a very successful, best-selling author of multiple books. Um, he had been uh, married at that point for, by over, for over 10 years. And, and I mean, for all intents and purposes, from the outside looking in, he was happily married. Married to a beautiful woman and Christian woman um, who was a great mother to their three kids. They had three beautiful children. Um, he, he was a, an award-winning humorist, which I'd never heard of, but apparently you can win awards for being funny. And he held a PhD that he worked very hard for. So ladies, if you're keeping score, he was the trifecta, right? He was funny, smart, and successful. And she was great too, the wife, uh, Lauren. She was fantastic. I mean, she's just a great person, a Christian woman. They were a church-going family. But, but there was, uh, in spite of all that, something unfulfilling about their marriage that they both perceived, but neither of them really acted on it or spoke about it. Because they felt guilty for feeling unfulfilled in a marriage that seemed so great. Some of you can relate. And so they just knew something was just a little off, and they felt like they were being disappointed by the marriage they were in, to the extent that they weren't, you know, in depression or anything about it, but they were numb. You ever been numb? Sounds great. Sounds great on the surface. So you realize it's not a blessing to lose the ability to feel. And it's not a blessing in marriage, certainly, to lose the ability to feel um, for the one you are in that marriage with. Then one day after sort of years of the slow burn, right, and the, 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 just the, the, the numb feeling setting in over years, and finally the wheels fell off when um, um, Harrison's wife, Lauren, told him about an affair she had been carrying on for years with a close family friend. And she confessed it, and her intention at that point was not to end it, necessarily. And uh, obviously, things uh, fell apart. And this kind of cheating is not usually something couples overcome. Some, like one-night stand type cheating, statistically, you've got a better shot. But an ongoing affair where there's not repentance or a clear will to leave, like that just, couples don't overcome that. And statistically, when it is the woman who sleeps around and not the man, uh, again, the chances are even less 
of a recovery. For some reason, women are more forgiving uh, than men statistically when it comes to this particular grievance. Well, Harrison, who is a Christian, couldn't find it in himself to give up on his marriage. And in a tick, I'm mean, not a TikTok, TED Talk. <laughs> anyway, I've got, I'm too worldly these days with all this dating talk. All right, so uh, TED Talk he gave that's now gone um, viral. He explained exactly why he couldn't give up on his marriage. So here is Harrison Scott King. The book of Micah says to do justice and love mercy, which always sounded like a paradox. Justice is not merciful and mercy is not just. But there on the phone with my wife, I think I finally got it. I think what it means is you have to keep your eyes wide open about how broken and awful people can be. You, me, her, all of us. And you have to love them anyway. You have to leave the door open for love, even when people hurt you. This is the paradox of wedding vows. When you get married, you're basically agreeing to be okay with being hurt. And so are they. It's wild. It's like you're making an impossible promise. And then you have the audacity to try and keep it. Well, I wasn't quite done trying to keep it yet. So I went and got in my truck and I went to go get my wife. We found an amazing therapist. We slept in separate beds for a very long time. We made it to one week, then one month, then a year, then two, each day slightly less weird than the day before. You know, rebuilding broken trust is a little bit like rebuilding someone's face after a disfiguring chainsaw accident. <laughs> it can be done, but it'll look different for a while, maybe forever, until one day it looks mostly normal or you stop noticing the scars or caring much when you do. We both changed a lot. Our marriage is now radically progressive. For example, I do a million times more housework than before. But the best thing, the best thing about our new marriage is that my wife no longer has a boyfriend. In that sense, it's more traditional. You know, G.K. Chesterton said, Angels can fly because they can take themselves lightly. Y'all, life is heavy. Being bitter, that's easy. But laughing, like learning to laugh again despite the heaviness, that is hard. And that, in my opinion, is the real secret to staying married. Two weeks ago, I had the chance to sit down with Harrison and his wife, Lauren, for an, an interview that lasted over an hour. We'll be broadcasting that interview on the Maybe God podcast channels, so be sure and follow Maybe God podcast to hear my conversation with these two beautiful and gifted people um, as, as we hear their story about uh, how they've recovered and how their marriage has. It's, uh, it's really encouraging. Um, to someone, one married person to, to y'all, I, I think that's uh, it's going to be an important listen. Now, in that clip I just shared with you, um, Harrison talks about the wedding vows being a great paradox. Did you hear that part? The paradox of the wedding vows. And as we press in now to, to, to find the distinctives between the world's answers to the marriage question and the Bible's answer to the marriage question. 
I, I think the vows that we take at our weddings are a, a really good place to start. I, I brought the vows up in a prior sermon in this series, but just think about those again with me and the, the gravity of those wedding vows. I mean, the promises that we make are heavy. The heaviest promises maybe we ever make out loud in public. I promise to have and to hold this person for, for better or for worse, to love and to cherish, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. Wow, serious promises. Well, let me ask you a question. Maybe you've been to secular weddings where God wasn't mentioned, but the promises were. In such weddings, to whom do the bride and groom make those profound promises? Who else? To each other. There's no one else. They're making those promises to each other. Let me tell you, those are some heavy promises for two broken, sinful, ordinary, ordinary people just like the rest of us, not only to make to one another, but to try and keep. I mean, it seems obvious that making those promises to each other is basically just lying and setting our marriage up for, for failure and disappointment. Now, in Christian marriage, we, we often say the same things, but, but it's different in a very important way. But when we, when we talk about you know, these secular weddings, I, I guess maybe that's why more and more people that I would call sort of secular or secular leaning, you know, are, are abandoning the old vows in favor of their own more, more nice and easy, easily attained vows, right? So, so an example, a few years ago, somebody, a sweet couple, really, I didn't know them. They found me online and they were looking for an efficient someone to do their wedding. And... I'm often willing to do that for the right price. I'm just kidding. No. Um, no. It's just, listen, there's certain things that I look for in a wedding because it's a big deal to me. It's like, you got to be Christians. You got to want a Christian wedding. You've, you've uh, you know, I don't, I don't travel a lot for weddings because I like to disciple my family first. And if I start traveling everywhere for weddings, it's just one more thing to have to do. And so anyway, I asked the couple for details and, and the bride was happy to send me the details. And she sent me details like, the date, and the date worked for me. I was open, so that was good. And she sent me um, the venue, and the venue was closed, and I liked that. And she sent me, you know, the, the, the pastor's fee, and that was quite generous, and I really liked that. And then she sent me, she said, by the way, we've chosen our own vows. And uh, something in my stomach turned, because I've heard that before, and it's rarely good, what I'm about to read. And these are the vows that she sent me. And I offer these to you as just one example of many that I could have shared about uh, what happens when we uh, forsake the traditional wedding vows for our own. This is what she said. You are my inspiration and my soul's fire. You are the magic of my days. I can't, I, just, I can't even, I, I'm, I could not have done this wedding. I would have not made it through the vows. I'm too cynical. I'm a jerk that way, right? So forgive me, but I just would have laughed like you were the magic of my days. <clears throat> you help me laugh. You teach me love. You provide a safe place for me, unlike I've ever known. You free me. <laughs> you free me to sing my own song. 
I am yours and you are mine. That part we say at Christian weddings. So those two lines I'm cool with. Of this we are certain. You are lodged in my heart. The small key is lost. You must stay there forever. <laughs> no, thank you. Like, the, the first half sounds like a Hallmark card, and the second half is like, is like a maximum security prison. It's like... <laughs> so I politely told this couple that I would be willing to consider their wedding if they would get invested in a local church. They didn't have to be this church, but any church, like because they had told me they weren't going anywhere, even though they considered themselves Christians, um, and if they would rethink their vows. And as of this morning, I had still not heard back from them. Um, it's been a few years, so I don't think they chose me. <laughs> All right. Now, at a secular wedding, the bride and groom make these vows to each other, but at a Christian wedding, what's different is that we make these vows about each other. We make them to God. That's why the presence of God is named and invoked at the beginning of every Christian wedding. That's why everything that happens throughout the wedding ceremony, every promise that's made is made under God's watchful eye in his loving presence, assuming uh, his uh, blessing. So we actually make the promises to God, bridegroom and if you've ever been to a, like a good Christian wedding, it's not just the bride and groom that make promises, it's everybody gathered. Because the pastor will usually say, everyone present, this is the congregation, this is the communion of saints, this is the body of Christ. Everybody here makes a promise to God on behalf of these two people to love, support, pray for, and, and, and do everything in our power to uphold them in their holy and sacred covenant from this day forward. If you agree, say, we will. We will. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. They're not making those promises to the two people. Getting married, we're making those promises to God. So are the bride and groom. Why? Because for us, marriage is not a contract between two people. It is a covenant that always involves God. In fact, God always takes a preeminent place in it. It is theocentric. Properly understood, marriage is theocentric for two reasons. Biblically speaking, first, it's theocentric, God-centered, because God invented marriage, according to the Bible. It was his idea. God invented marriage before the fall, before sin and everything entered the picture. You could, I think, accurately say, or make the case, that were it not for sin entering the picture, then there would be no single people. God's design was for everyone to have a family, for everyone to be in a marriage. For, and you, you could also say, for example, if, you know, if not for the fall, there would be no widows and widowers and things like that, right? Because the fall brought all that on us and created all this chaos. That's what sin has done. I'm not saying if you're not married, you're any more of a sinner than the rest of us. We're all in the same boat here. I'm just saying it has consequences, sin. Now, God made marriage for us. And God also made us for marriage, all right? So this is the first reason why um, we think of marriage as God-centered. Now, what's important when you see how God made marriage is to understand what exactly God's doing. And this will get us to the second and more profound reason why we understand marriage to be God-centered. When God made the first man, Adam, and the first woman, he didn't just make them at the same time, conjuring them up, you know, in the same way. 
God made the man first. And if you've ever read Genesis 1 and 2, you know this. The Lord God formed the man out of what? Mud, the dust of the earth. God took a bunch of dirt, threw it together, made a man, breathed life into his lungs, and the man became a living, breathing, dirty human. But God didn't make the woman from dirt. Ladies, insert your joke here, okay? God made the man from dirt. But God made the woman from man. God took part of his side or rib, depending on how you read it, and made the woman from man. Why? Because it was important for God and his design that the man and the woman come from the same stuff, be made of the same substance. Had God taken dirt to make Eve after he took dirt to make Adam, they would have come from different dirt. But God made the man from the dirt and the woman from the man so that they would be the same stuff, the same nature, the same substance. And when the man and the woman were of the same substance and, and God made the, the woman for the man, this is what the man Adam said. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. One flesh. So God's design is for a man and a woman who are fundamentally different from each other to come together as one. Now, the differences are important. I can only imagine the differences were the first thing Adam and Eve noticed about each other. What are those? What's that? I don't know. Let's be one. Like, <laughs> that was how that went, probably. And that sacred union brought them together, but it didn't extinguish their uniqueness. Adam was still a man. Eve was still a woman. He was still him. She was still her. Whenever you have your wedding and you light your unity candle or whatever, don't put your candle out. After you light the middle one, leave your candle lit because it's not like your individuality is snuffed out by this new, you know, one candle. I guess I'm not me anymore. I'm just us. No, that's not how it works. It's the uniqueness of the individuals coming together that makes the union so sacred, so divine. Then 40 weeks or so later after that union, God willing, an even greater miracle comes just as the woman is taken from the man. The child is taken from the woman. Same substance. Different, but the same. Unique, but unified. And they become a family. One body. One flesh. Now, if you're a Christian and you've studied the Bible at all, you've probably got like all kinds of alarm bells going off, like, this sounds familiar, and it should. Because marriage didn't just make... I mean, God didn't just make marriage for us. God is a marriage for us. And, and that marriage is defined in terms of these three unique persons that are in communion together. They are one substance. They are one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three of these persons in the Trinity have different roles and qualifications and duties. And the Father sends the Son, and the Son sends the Spirit. And the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, and the Son, the son is not the Spirit or the Father, or the Spirit is not the Son. Anyway, you get it. And, and the whole idea is that they are three unique persons, but they are one flesh, one body, one God, one substance. 
So it is with us. And so the family, the marriage, was intended to point people toward the Godhead and to familiarize us with God's nature. Why? Because his plan is for us to be with him forever. And when we get to heaven one day, it's going to be a family affair. And if you don't know or you're not familiar with what a family should feel like and how a family should function, you're going to have an adjustment period, I suppose. And some of you that don't come from good families don't get discouraged. I mean, honestly, that's what the church is for. That's helping us to see what God's intention was in designing and and, uh, defining marriage the way that he did. So... What does this have to do with your marriage? I am so out of time. I'm going to tell you quickly what this has to do with your marriage. This fires me up, and I could honestly talk all day about it. It's not two people finding a way to stay in love forever. Gosh, Lord forbid. Like, who could make their marriage last that way? Instead, it is two people loved by God. Two people loved by God. Loving God together and learning what it means to love each other. Learning from God what it means to love each other. So here's the lie. The lie is, once again, your marriage and your spouse should fulfill you. The truth of Scripture is that only God can do that. Only God can fulfill you and your spouse and your marriage. He is our fulfillment And as long as we put that heavy yoke of fulfill me on your spouse, you're going to set her up or him up for disappointment. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10 say more about this concept of fulfillment. So then, Paul wrote, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, like your spouse and your marriage should fulfill you. This philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form in Christ, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. This is specifically for those in the room who are followers of Jesus. You're already with Christ. My question is just obvious from the reading. If Christ, in Christ dwells the fullness of the deity, and if in Christ we have come to our fullness, What are we doing running around looking for fulfillment from other people and things and places and stuff? We should have been done with that long ago, including our habit of of seeking and expecting people and our spouses in particular to fulfill us. What if you made a habit? Seriously, ask yourself this question. Instead of coming home empty, needing your spouse to fill you up, if you're married or you hope to be one day, what if you committed yourself to spending time with the Lord, even if it's just a little bit of time in the car on the way home, and you walked in the door of your house full of Christ, ready, overflowing, as it said in this passage, overflowing with Christ, so that if anyone in your house feels a little empty, 
Not only do you not expect them to fulfill you or fill you up, you're ready to fill them up. What if instead of expecting or waiting for your spouse to serve you and meet all your needs, you followed in the footsteps of Christ and said, when you walk in the door of your house, I have not come to be served, but to serve. What if you allowed Christ to so fill you up on a daily basis that you had no need for any other person to fill you up as only he can? And the real magic question is, what if both husband and wife made that choice to be daily filled up by Christ? What kind of a force, what kind of a light could they shine in this dark world if both of them sought their fulfillment in Christ and Christ alone. I think this is the key and the secret to marriage. If you're in a struggling, um, difficult marriage, this is the key to your healing. Maybe you're someone who's in love with Jesus, but your spouse isn't. Look, there might be a season where, where you cling to Christ and your spouse just orbits like a satellite. One day, by the grace of God, they may draw near to Christ. And if they do, I bet it will be because of something they've seen in you, full of Christ, walking in the door, ready to serve. I pray this for you and your family, for your marriage. There is so much at stake when we talk about these things. And if all of this just seems so, so far gone because your marriage ended long ago or you feel like it did, I pray you would find encouragement and hope in the presence of God in your life today. He does not leave anyone abandoned or alone. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this reminder today of your intent when it comes to marriage and family. Lord, um, thank you not just for giving us the gift of marriage and family, but for being a marriage and family of sorts, for being a community, a covenant community in and of yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the marriages in this room, and um, I pray that you would enter into each one, breathe a breath of life, Lord, and remind each husband and each wife in this room and watching or listening online that we need not seek our fulfillment uh, or have our needs met by our spouse or any other person, but if we learn to rely completely on you, you are always faithful to fulfill us. We pray all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.